It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 870 for the 23rd of February, 2024. This week, which is better, cable or streaming? There are lots of variables, and cable is perfect for some people, while streaming is the winner for others. After switching to streaming three years ago, now seemed like a good time to reevaluate. In short circuits, you may have some old digital photos that would benefit greatly from today's AI-powered applications. I have a couple of examples for you. Warning, your privacy settings cannot guarantee your privacy on Facebook. Well, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, should it? Maybe it's time to reevaluate streaming services. I've pondered that a time or two since we dropped cable and switched to a variety of streaming services about three years ago. Our primary goal then was to reduce the cost of watching television. The switch saved more than $600 per year. Initially, I wrote about switching shortly after we'd completed the process in August of 2021, and I had a follow-up article a little less than a year later in June of 2022. You'll find links to both of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week if you want to go back in history and take a look at what I was thinking back then, assuming, of course, that I was thinking. At the beginning, the cost was around $160 a month compared with around $220 for cable. Since then, most of the streaming services have increased their prices, and we've added a couple of extra services. Even though I watch far less television than my wife does, I probably use more of the streaming services. The cost for Internet and cable television services has remained about the same, but some Internet service providers have started offering a streaming option that might include some of the sources that are in our various streaming services. The cost is now $178 a month, an increase of less than $20, and it reflects the addition of a couple of new services that we probably don't use enough to justify their presence. But even though some could be eliminated, and using the cable provider's new streaming service would cover many, but not all, of the channels we watch, using the various streaming services seems to be the best option. For now. For us. If you're considering a switch from cable to streaming, or from streaming back to cable, here are some things you might want to consider. It's the things I've been mulling over for the past several weeks. First, neither solution is ideal, and both seem to cost a lot, at least until you stop to think about hardware and software, licensing fees, and payments to talented people in front of and behind the cameras who make the entertainment possible. If simplicity of use is your primary consideration, it's cable. You get a magic box that sits near the television and comes with a remote control. You have access to all of the local channels and dozens or hundreds of cable channels. Until you sign up for a video recorder service, you'll have to watch when the program is on, though. If convenience and flexibility are at the top of your list, streaming is definitely the way to go. Sign up for the services that offer the programs you want, and you can watch them anytime you want. And you can watch the programs on your computer, notebook, tablet, or phone. 
Those are a couple of options I like. Cable gives you live content with real-time access to news, sports, and network programs as they're being broadcast. Depending on your budget, you can choose from a huge variety of channels or stick with just a few. Ease of use is definitely a plus, and the cable signal usually continues to be present even if the provider's internet functions are slow or having some other problems. Streaming complicates things a bit because you'll need either a smart television or a plug-in device that connects to the television and makes it a smart television and also connects it to your home network. The big advantage is that you can watch whichever programs you want to whenever you want to watch them. The cost may be lower than cable, but that depends on how many streaming services you sign up for. An article by Charlie Warzel in The Atlantic highlights the problem with streaming, too many choices, and the requirement to subscribe to a service just to get one program that you really want to watch. Warzel writes, Most evenings I find myself stuck in this phase, during which time I'm likely to cycle through something resembling five stages of grief. There's denial. I swear I had a Paramount Plus account. Anger. I can't believe I have to pay for Paramount Plus. Bargaining. I promise I'll cancel my subscription after the one-week Paramount Plus trial period ends. Depression. I can't believe I didn't remember to cancel Paramount Plus after the trial period ended. And acceptance. Let's just head to Netflix and watch Suits. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? And I realized that he was describing the dilemma I've encountered, and perhaps the one you've also encountered. Quoting again, Interested in Disney Plus? That'll be $8 a month. Unless you want it ad-free, then it's $11 a month. How about Hulu? That's $8 a month or $80 a year if you're willing to put up with ads and pay in advance, or $15 a month without ads. But what if I told you that you could have Disney Plus and Hulu together? That'll cost you $10 a month with ads. The ad-free version will run you $20 a month. Want to add ESPN Plus to the bundle? No problem. Just add another $3 a month. Or $10 if you don't want those pesky commercials. Got it? Yeah, that sounds a lot like things I've been thinking about. Well, then there's Philo with more than 100 channels on offer. Low price, just $25 a month instead of four times that with Fubo. But Philo doesn't offer any local channels or popular news channels. So maybe Philo is a worthwhile consideration, but making changes entails a fair amount of work to remove existing services and add new ones to however many televisions you have in the house and all of the devices you watch streaming services on. For me, for now, I'm going to stick with just what we have. But if you're seriously considering changes, I can recommend two excellent online articles, NPR's How to Choose the Streaming Services That Are Right for You and Tom's Guides, The Best Cable Television Alternatives in 2024. There are links to both of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Happy streaming! If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat.
In short circuits, the addition of artificial intelligence to photo editing tools makes improving older digital photos not just possible, but also fun. The possibilities are nearly limitless. In 2007, I visited a direct mail vendor in Brooklyn while in town for another event. The shop was located near the Broadway Junction station. It's an elevated station that serves the BMT Canarsie line and the BMT Jamaica line, as well as the IND Fulton Street line, which is underground at that point. For all of its problems, the New York City transit system is what keeps the city running, and I have many photos taken in and around the trains and the stations. I liked one that I took in February of 2007, but there were numerous problems with it. The day was gray and hazy, and the Olympus FE-180 camera, although fairly robust for the time, doesn't compare well with even today's mobile phone cameras. The camera captured a 6-megapixel image. That's right, 6 megapixels. And it compressed the images substantially to save space on the memory card. There was significant fringing, and there was little detail in highlights. The bland, overcast day muted the colors, and the sky was an ugly, uniform gray. But this image had potential. I wanted to see if improvements might be possible, so I started by using Upscale, which I described on the 26th of January, and you'll find a link to that earlier article on the website. Upscale doubled the size of the original image and added apparent detail. Next, I imported the modified PNG image to Lightroom Classic, and I used the PNG format to avoid losing any more detail, which would have happened if I had selected the JPEG format. I used Lightroom Classic to remove fringing and improve the image's overall contrast. Then I had Lightroom Classic create a TIFF image and send it over to Photoshop. I used Photoshop's AI capabilities to select and replace the sky, and then returned the modified TIFF with a brand new sky to Lightroom Classic, where I added a few more tweaks, including a slight push of the image's saturation. The result is a much more satisfying image, and the process took only a few minutes, despite the number of steps I just listed. I don't want to spend a few minutes on every old image in the Lightroom Classic catalog, but spending a few minutes on individual images can be time very well spent. You'll see the before and after images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I was back in New York City in mid-June 2007 with the family as we celebrated our younger daughter's graduation from art school. We visited a lot of museums, and I photographed Katie standing near the Intersection 2 sculpture by Richard Serra at the Museum of Modern Art. The gigantic sculpture is amazing, and I like the way Katie is standing, but I have been bugged by two aspects of that photograph every time I see it. That's 17 years now, if you're counting, and I see the image several times a year. What annoys me? Well, there's a sign on the left. It's bright white, so the viewer's eye goes right to the sign first because it's so bright. It was undoubtedly a warning of some sort, so I suppose it had to be there. But it's still annoying in the photograph. And there was a lady in the background. I had hoped for a photo in which the only person present would be Katie. But the Museum of Modern Art is a popular museum, and waiting seemed unwise. It seemed about as likely that more people would show up in the image rather than fewer. Fortunately, replacing the sign was an easy task for Photoshop's generative fill, and I even had it replace a grate that was at the right of the sign. 
Removing the woman in the background was equally easy, although I did need two tries to get the selection right. And just like that, I had an image that will no longer bug me. Artificial intelligence can be overused and used with malicious intent, but that's true of any tool. The hammer that can be used to build a cozy home can also be used to kill somebody. Electricity that lights that cozy home can also kill if not used carefully and correctly. AI will certainly have some negative effects, but it also offers many advantages when used properly. I came across a warning the other day. Warning, your privacy settings cannot guarantee your privacy on Facebook. That was a headline of an article. Well, I stopped and stared at it for a while, and I wondered who would have any expectation of guaranteed privacy on Facebook. I post things to Facebook every day. Cat pictures are common, as are daily Today Is images. This TechBiter Worldwide column and podcast will be published on the 23rd of February, which is National Banana Bread Day. And you'll see that image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I post these images globally, and clearly I have no expectation that they will be private. Occasionally I post something that only my friends can see, but I still have no expectation that what I've posted, even if I limit it to friends, is really private. Anyone who can see the post can share it, but Facebook will show it only to friends that we have in common, so that would make it safe, right? Well, no. If I have posted an image, anyone who sees it can copy the photo and post it publicly. And if it's just a text comment, anyone can grab either a screenshot or just scrape the text and post it publicly. If there's an image or comment that you don't want to be available globally, the solution is surprisingly simple. Just don't post it. Sending the image or comment via email is no more secure, even if your email messages are encrypted. The recipient may see the comment or the image as something that they'd like to share with their closest 75,000 friends and anybody who uses Facebook. So what you sent, thinking it was private, might show up on Facebook. So if there's an important image or comment that you don't want to be available globally, that solution is also surprisingly simple. Just don't email it. Rick Rouse is the person who wrote the headline that stopped me in my tracks. As Rick puts it, once you click post, publish, or send, that information or photograph is no longer under your control. So don't expect something that Facebook can't deliver and wouldn't deliver even if it could. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>